But I get to Boston University. One of the first guys that comes in the weight room is a guy named Dave Silk. If you've seen the movie Miracle, which you probably have, Dave Silk was on the 80 Olympic team. We had four BU players on the 80 Olympic team, um, two of which coached for us. Dave Silk and Mike Ruzioni were both coaches for us at Boston University. So I got to be on the, on the staff with them. But Dave Silk was one of the first guys that walked in and said, um, you know, I'm playing pro hockey in Germany and trying to get ready for the season. Would you help me out? And I said, sure. And welcome back to another episode of the Conjugate Chats, powered by the DOYSC, the Department of Young Strength Coaches. So whether you are a uh, student of kinesiology, exercise science, or a young strength coach going into the field of strength conditioning, they are here for a resource for you in order for you to develop into a better coach and to develop into the field of strength conditioning. So I will put their link into the Discord of this uh, episode here. So please be sure to rate, like, subscribe, and even share this podcast with a fellow coach. I'm your host, John Bart Raspberry, current strength coach over at Bolivar Central High School. I'm here with Coach Mike Boyle. So, Coach Boyle, how are you doing today? I am doing excellent. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, So, I don't know if you listened to season one at all um, of any of the previous episodes. So, this is going to be a little bit different kind of breakdown of the episode we have a few segments that we're going to kind of go through uh obviously we're going to be talking about um the topic that we kind of discussed and um we got a few questions on twitter and uh a few personal questions for myself and um we'll wrap it up and get this thing going all right let it let it rip i'm i'm ready to go (laughs) all right so the first segment that we have is called trifasic tricks and tips so basically, this is where you are giving us a tip or a trick that you discovered in your own coaching experience. So this could be in the weight room, this could be in Google Sheets, Excel, this could be on the field of court, just something to help other coaches. Well, you know, I think if you, if you talk about tricks, I always say, you know, you, you don't want to learn the tricks of the trade before you learn the trade. So um, I don't worry that if you saw our programming, most people that would come and see our programming would say, Wow, it's really simple. If I'm going to give you a trick, time sprints. There's my trick. Because if we look at what most people do, they try to get faster and they don't time their athletes. And I've been writing about it. It's really Tony Holler has influenced me greatly into the last four years in this particular area because I was doing what everybody else was doing. I was, you know, we were doing cleans and doing, you know, whatever, squatting. I won't say squat, squatting variations. And all these things that we're supposed to be doing to get faster. But one, we didn't know how fast people were and we weren't quantifying that. So now we sprint pretty much every athlete that comes in our room sprints every day. We do some version of a fly 10 and we time it so that when I, if someone says I want to get faster, I can say on day one, okay, this is how fast you are. And then I can monitor whether or not you're actually getting faster. So that if you're talking about tips, that would be my tip. So you're saying time sprints. What do you use to time sprints? I, I mean, do you use still the hand time, free lab, dasher? Oh, arena gear. So we're uh, arena gate timers. And um, Coach uh, Weber, Coach Lee Weber, I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, but he had recommended it on me. It's actually a started out as a rodeo timer. It is the best, most accurate, inexpensive. It Like dasher, I couldn't get dasher to even work. I, I had a dasher that someone gave me as a demo. 
we spent hours with it. Couldn't get a time out of it. Uh, we had a Brower. I liked the original Brower, but the the Brower, the next generation of Brower, they they made the this little square, little box that sort of is your hand start box. And all of a sudden it had nine buttons on it and you had to know like press this button and this button instead of it just being a simple start stop. And it was really expensive. So when uh, Coach Weber introduced me to, he said, if this, you got to really try this uh, arena gear timer. I was like, what do I got to lose? We ordered one. I think they're 500 bucks for a fly 10 setup, which is about, I don't know, a third maybe of the Brower and way less than a free lap. So uh, we, we now have a couple. We've bought the scoreboards because they give you a, a digitized um, scoreboard that you can buy with it. So everybody, your time comes right up on the wall uh, in a, a really large digital display, probably, I would say, maybe eight inches by three feet wide, maybe bigger, maybe a foot by three feet, but it's a pretty good-sized digital screen. So, And we've timed some version of a Fly 10 all the time. We're obviously in the Northeast. It's not easy. So when we get to this time of year where it gets cold, the best we can do is 25 yards. So we would fly, we would time a fly 10 with a 15 yard fly in. That would be, and generally for us, we start at five yard fly in in our first phase. We move to 10 yard fly in in our second phase. We move to 15 yard fly in in our third phase. In the, in the summer, when we have more time outside, we'll get to 20. And we even played, I think we played a little bit with some 25 flies, but that's still only 35. Whereas someone like Tony, he t he gets his fly 10 off of the last 10 yards of the 40. So he will generally hand time 40s, I think, and then get his uh, electronic fly 10 off the end. Gotcha. Uh, so talking about recording your times, right? So obviously from day one until, I guess, the last day that you see these athletes, uh, you're recording every single day. So what are you using to record all those 10 yard flies and those buildups and stuff a piece like that of paper and a pencil. <laughs> we're, we're not, like I said, we're decided particularly as a private business, we're pretty low tech. I'm not going to spend a lot of money on iPads and computers. And I don't like Google sheets. I don't like Google period. I think Google's trying to take over the world. So Google is, you know, anything Google that you want to do, the worst thing that ever happened to YouTube was Google. And suddenly you get into the fight. Now you can't, you can't upload to YouTube off your iPhone because Google owns YouTube now. They take that feature away. So I'm I'm very anti-Google, anti-Google Sheets, anti-Google email. I still have an AOL email, as you well know. Well, this is a Google email that I sent you. <laughs> the link on, I, I guess that's what kind of made me have that running around for a little bit. Um, so let's go ahead and go into the second segment. So this is called Heavy Train Topics. So it's the main reason why we're here for even the episode. Um, obviously, the topic that we're going to be talking about is the history of strength and conditioning and, I guess, your history with strength and conditioning as well. So let's just start from the beginning. What made you even want to go into strength and conditioning? Uh, my father was a high school coach, and I was, a, like, I think everybody, I was a high school football player who lifted weights. Probably, I think, half of lifting weights was to get better at high school football, and half of lifting weights was to look better so maybe I'd meet girls and I would say that is probably the main reason that every one of us 
got into strength and conditioning unless our dad was actually a strength and conditioning coach, which in my case, there were no strength and conditioning coaches when I was a kid. So that was not really all that possible. My father coached uh, basketball, coached football. And um, so I knew I wanted to be involved in sports, but I just didn't know exactly how I started out in athletic training because I felt like that was probably the best. I didn't, it's, interesting that I ended up coaching all these different sports because I knew I didn't want to coach a sport like I I was a pretty good swimmer actually I was a real good swimmer actually real good swimmer average high school football player uh, but high school football mattered a whole lot more to me than swimming did I never really put a lot of energy into swimming but I put a lot of energy into football and that led to okay how do you get better and getting better seemed to revolve around working out and this idea of strength training so I honestly, I had, and I mean, you will have no recollection of any of this. It will only be the old people listening to this, but I had a York metal 110 pound set with a wall chart that I tacked up on the wall in my basement. And I bought a, my parents got me a bench probably for Christmas. I was probably 12 or 13 years old lifting weights in my basement. And that was 50 years ago. So I'm 63 years old. So that was 50 or 51 years ago that I started tinkering with this idea that weight training could make somebody better at sports. That's awesome. And uh, I, I kind of agree with what you're talking about said that, um, you know, in high school, it's a little bit about the sport that you're playing and more like uh, going and chase girls and, you know, looking better to, I guess, impress girls. So I guess that's where kind of everyone start. Well, most, a majority of people start out, um, I would say so. Doing, doing, yes. So when was the moment that kind of clicked for you that this was going to be a career? So the moment, and again, when you talk about the history of strength and conditioning, the moment was I went to college with Rusty Jones and Mike Wojcik. So if you follow the NFL, they are the two longest tenured guys in the history of the NFL. Mike Wojcik actually, up until three years ago was tied with Tom Brady for most Super Bowl rings. So Mike had six Super Bowl rings, three with Dallas Cowboys, three with New England Patriots. Rusty actually was tied with most Super Bowl appearances. He was the Buffalo Bills strength coach, and I think he went to five Super Bowls without getting a Super Bowl ring. He's now still the Indianapolis Colts uh, strength conditioning coach, I believe. You see, unretired, he retired, then went back to Indy. But they were both at Springfield College when I was there. Mike was the track field event coach and Rusty was a GA football coach. But after their grad work was done, which probably would have been maybe me going into my senior year, they got jobs as strength coaches. They had got part-time jobs, actually. Mike Wojcik got hired at Syracuse University as the track uh, field event coach. So he was a, he was a shot putter discus thrower at Boston College who coached the shot putters and discus throws. So coached the field event guys at Springfield college. When I was there, he got hired at Syracuse as the uh, football strength coach and the track field event coach. So he had a dual role job. Rusty went and got hired by the Pittsburgh Maulers, which again, you're, you're, you're way too young to be interviewing me because you're going to have to go and do internet searches. But the Pittsburgh Maulers were in the USFL. So the USFL was kind of a, maybe a three or four year thing in the early 80s, maybe even mid-80s, that was trying to compete with the NFL. But the Pittsburgh Maulers hired Rusty and the Pittsburgh Penguins. They were both owned at that time by the DiBartolo family, who owns the 49ers. 
So the moment all of a sudden I thought, wow, this is actually a job. I know two guys who have jobs as strength coaches. And I started thinking, okay, this is what I want to do. But at that time, I just, I was finishing up my ATC. I was getting a master's in athletic training. I was getting certified as an athletic trainer. I was doing all this with the idea that I was going to be an athletic trainer. I went to Boston University as an athletic trainer and I did it for a semester. And at the end of that semester, I thought, this is not what I want to do. And I went to my boss and I said, I'm, I'm resigning my full-time athletic training job and I'm going to be the volunteer strength coach. So we had a little weight room across this hall that was about 700 square feet. I resigned my athletic training job and luckily no one said, you have to leave the school. I just literally walked across the hall and started sitting in the weight room. And when people came in the weight room, I was sort of like, hey, here I am. I'm the strength coach. Quit my job yesterday, appointed myself strength coach today, and I am ready to roll. And uh, and interestingly enough, I mean, we it's just, I always say, it's not really luck. I don't know what it is, but um, I always call them the outliers moments. If you've ever read Outliers, you know, Outliers, they call it the, I think the the subtitle is something about the story of greatness. And you just realize that, there's all of these incredibly fortunate accidents that fall you fall into. But I get to Boston University. One of the first guys that comes in the weight room is a guy named Dave Silk. If you've seen the movie Miracle, which you probably have, Dave Silk was on the 80 Olympic team. We had four BU players on the 80 Olympic team, um, two of which coached for us. Dave Silk and Mike Ruzioni were both coaches for us at Boston University. So I got to be on the, on the staff with them. But Dave Silk was one of the first guys that walked in and said, um, you know, I'm playing pro hockey in Germany and trying to get ready for the season. Would you help me out? And I was like, sure. Can't believe this guy from the, you know, because I had just got done. It wasn't that far removed. It was probably 82. I had watched them win the gold medal. And uh, and now I've got one of these guys in the weight room asking me to help him out. Our basketball guy started coming in. Our point guard at the time was Brett Brown, who ended up being the 76ers coach for a long time. Uh, he was our point guard at Boston University. Our head coach was Rick Pitino. If you follow basketball, uh, he was has been a hugely successful college coach. And his assistant was a guy named John Kuster, who still coaches in the NBA right now. So we had all these NBA, you know, kind of people, people that were going to be somebody were just roaming around Boston University at that time. And we were like a mid-major. We weren't a big deal. But um, so I started, I got involved first with basketball. <clears throat> and then the football coach, the football offensive line coach was running the strength program. And he was a friend of mine from college. And interestingly enough, his name is Tim Murphy. He's been the head coach, head football coach at Harvard for 29 years, which I can't believe it's been that long, but 29 years. <clears throat> but I convinced him to let me run the football strength program. And I gave him an incredible sales pitch. I will do it for free and I will be here every day. <laughs> and they still said no initially. He said, I don't think we can, I don't think we can do it. I think, I don't think the head coach will let you do it. And I, and I remember I, I was like, Murph, I'm going to be here. You guys have to recruit. So the strength program is a mess because you guys are in and out of the weight room. The players are here. The coaches aren't here. Different people supervising the weight room. I said, you know that I know what I'm doing and I'm going to be here every day. And he went to the head coach and he basically pitched that. He was like, Mike, the trainer that just quit says he'll be in the weight room every afternoon and supervise the guys. Will you let him do it? And the guy kind of, his name was Rick Taylor, not my favorite person in my career, but he eventually caved and said, a free strength coach is better than no strength coach. So my career was off to the races. That's incredible. Especially when we talk about like, 
I believe it's the 1980 Olympics when they faced the Soviet Union uh, to win the gold medal. I mean, I watched the movie Miracle and, you know, I'm like, that's awesome. I would love to, you know, been there or, you know, be in that time period just to just to watch it and, and experience it. I could imagine, you know, being side by a couple of those players who are coaches and they just won the gold medal, you know, all this kind of stuff. That's in, that's incredible. Yeah, it, it was pretty amazing. I mean, I've met I, the only one I don't Jim Craig, the goalie, I don't know, but the other three guys I know really well. Uh, and as I said, coach, got to coach for years with two of them, with Mike Garuzioni and Dave Silk. And then strangely enough, my business partner's son, who also played for us at Boston University, ended up playing Dave Silk in the movie Miracles. So Bobby Hanson Jr., my my business partner for 25 years, is a guy named Bob Hanson. His son was a hockey player who played at Boston University. But if you look at the movie Miracle, he plays Dave Silk in the, in the movie because they were looking for real, they wanted real hockey players, not actors. So two of my athletes, Mike Mantenuto, who unfortunately has since passed away, and uh, Bobby were in the are in the movie Miracle. That's awesome. It's great, pretty I, great. I have to go back and rewatch Miracle and just say, oh, that's who, uh, that's who. Uh, you figure out when you watch. So Mike Mantenuto was Jack O'Callaghan, and Bobby Hanson was Dave Still, the guy that played Ruzioni was an actor because that was a bigger part. So they used an actual actor for Mike Ruzioni. Gotcha, gotcha. That's awesome. So kind of move along through here um, in your time in strength and conditioning, what are some things that you've seen change and what are some things that you've seen differently uh, throughout the years? Um, I, I think the, I mean, the, the technology thing has really changed, but now you I always, I kind of say this in podcasts a lot when I'm talking to young guys, you have, you're looking at a guy right now, we were pre-computer and pre-cell phone. So imagine being in a weight room where you are writing down test results on a yellow legal pad, or maybe you have the football secretary typing out a roster and like mimeographing, you know, the sort of before copy machines even existed. Uh, that was how we were testing. And there, there was really no technology. It was probably, it was probably into the nineties before we even got a computer in the office where we could start to, to enter data into some sort of database program or spreadsheet program or whatever it was. So, um, but the interesting thing about it is that if you look at the weight room, uh, kind of the barbell, dumbbell, and rack thing hasn't changed all that much. If you look at the basics of strength training, bench press, kind of, you know, whatever, power clean, hand clean, squatting movements, chin-ups, hasn't really changed that much. It's more the tech surrounding it. And, and what we know, we know way more about the body. When I started out, you know, you know, anatomically, we were clueless. We all took what I would call origin insertion anatomy. We took, you know, and we were told that, okay, quadricep extends the knee and hamstring flexes. But uh, so I think we've learned, and that's where the whole, you know, functional training, functional anatomy, there's all these things that we've learned over time to improve on training. But if I go back and look, jumps, sprints, cleans, bench press, chin up, it's like, yeah, some days I look at it and think not that much has changed. Gotcha. So we talk about social media a lot on here because it's kind of a big part of training conditioning now, um, especially on Twitter. So how has, I guess, social media changed strength and conditioning? How has it I guess, enhanced it as well. 
Well, I think it's enhanced it because I get to meet a young guy like you, right? There's people, I get to meet all of these people through social media that I might never have met. It's replaced, suddenly you don't have to go to a conference and maybe you don't have to get up the nerve to say, hey, I'm going to walk over and talk to coach so-and-so and introduce myself. And it's just, it's opened up a massive world for everybody, young, old. I mean, I have followers, I just posted a picture yesterday some guy translated my book into russian my last book and it's like okay russian i mean that was one of the languages that we weren't getting to now that information is getting to russia so when you think uh, my book my new functional training for sports is in something like 14 languages right now so all that stuff is crazy and i think a lot of that is a result of social media i really do because we're all interconnected in a way that we were not before. It would be very difficult for you to connect with a coach in what you know, France or England or Italy or Hungary or wherever it was. And now we can do that on a day-to-day basis. We can exchange information with people. So that's the good part. The bad part about strength and conditioning and about strength and conditioning Twitter is that there's no editor and there's no filter. So I I, I love when someone, you know, will all of a sudden type like. They're talking about some 30-year-old kid who's done nothing. And they're like, oh, legend. You know, he's a legend in the field. And I'm like, he's 30. He hasn't coached anybody in his life. How can he be a legend in the field? He's he's like a legend in his own mind on Twitter. And so we've got that sort of reverse phenomenon because the, the bad thing about social media, in my mind, is that if you just pretend to be an expert and you're really good at pretending, there's lots of other people who are going to go right along with you. So it's a big, it can be a really big echo chamber. That's, I think that's the negative part. And, and it's hard because if you, if you're negative, if you come across and say, Hey, this guy's a clown, he has no idea what he's doing, then you're a bad guy on social media. So you have to be careful. But then you look at some people and think, wait a second, this guy's a complete fraud and he's not, actually he doesn't do the things that he says he does again it makes you look bad from a social media perspective so it's a difficult area to navigate because it's very hard to call out the fraudulent behavior you think because i I mean i could and i would say my last podcast will be just sitting here and saying hey these are all the frauds (laughs) but i got to make sure that i'm i'm ready to never do another one after that but I mean, there are people who have great internet reputations and yet they've never actually done any of the things that they claim to have done. And there's other people who then, and there's similar people who get jobs, get consulting jobs, start working with professional teams based on uh, kind of, you know, air resumes. So I think that's the negative part of social media. But I think the positive far outweighs the negative because one of the things I'm a big advocate of is, hey, if you don't like somebody, block them. If you don't think they're good at what they do, block them. If you don't want to interact with them, block them. So you can curate your own feed and realize that, okay, I I interact with who I want to interact with when I want to interact with them. And if I find somebody is whatever, not my cup of tea, not up to my standards, I can just simply eliminate that person. The problem is I don't think, and I've said this for a long time, I wrote – uh an article called Maintaining Credibility in the Internet Age, exactly about this. And I think that's the difficult part. The difficult part is that people who call other people out 
it end up looking bad themselves when in fact they may be trying to provide a service to this internet world that we live in. Gotcha. Uh, social media has been a big influence, especially for a lot of coaches. Either it has given them a voice, it's given them a, almost a platform to promote strength and conditioning or even um, themselves. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be first one to admit, you know, sometimes I do promote myself as well. You know, if I'm, I'm such a young coach in this industry that, you know, I'm still trying to figure out things left and right. I'm like, hey, I figured out this or I figured out that. And um, I, I mean, someone, another coach can be like, well, that's already been discovered or that's already been done before. But, you know, to someone that's young and pre green into the field, um, you know, learning new things is pretty, pretty exciting, especially when you get to figure it out, post on, on Twitter or something like that. And, you know, kind of get that interaction from other coaches. Some may have not thought about that way or um, maybe sparked a new idea for another coach. But social media has really, really uh, turned up the strength and conditioning kind of profession. Oh, I think you're, you're 100% right. I think the difference is I think it's great if it's done right. I think if you're, if you're honest and you – represent your accomplishment or your position in the field accurately, then that's great. But as with everything else, I mean, this, I found this out when I was probably your age, it was that way with people writing for muscle magazines. There were people writing articles for muscle magazines, which was our Twitter, right? And when I was a kid, it was strength and health or muscle and fitness or uh, Iron Man magazine or whatever it was. That was where your information was coming from. And in much the same way, there were people who were writing for the magazines who really weren't probably, quote unquote, experts. They weren't the best people doing it. So I think it's great as long as you actually factually represent what you're doing. I think it's bad when people are out there overstating their accomplishments or in some cases outright lying, which, again, if you said I'm going to turn this off and then I, I could tell you, okay. I'll tell you about 10 people who are totally full of shit. And, and you'd, and you'd be like, no way, no way, no way. And I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. Total frauds have not done it all, not done any of the things that they claim that they've done. Gotcha. So let's kind of backtrack a little bit. So we kind of talked about the eighties a little bit, talked about the nineties for a little bit. So the two thousands, was there really any change in training and conditioning during that time? I mean, oh, I was yeah. like, I mean, I was like in middle school and elementary school at yeah. the time. So, so think about two thousand. So two thousand was uh, two thousand four. I published functional training for sports, and Mark Verstegen published core performance. I always tell everybody people should read the original core performance. I think Mark Verstegen and athletes performance, uh, you know, which eventually became Exos. He the field really started to change because probably in the eighties and nineties, we were strength coaches and it was kind of all about the weight room. And it was all about squat, bench, press, power, clean. There's still people, I mean, right now, 2022, there's still guys that it's that way for them. But I remember we started looking and part of it was we started training guys for the NFL combine. We started realizing, you know, there was stuff people used to say, you know, you, you can't, you can't teach speed. You can't create speed. And suddenly we would have guys go and blow up the combine and people would be like, you know, how did that happen? It's like, well, we, 
We taught him how to run faster. And we taught him how to change direction. We taught, we started teaching things. So Mark started talking about this idea of performance enhancement specialists. And we started talking about the idea of functional training. And we started talking about, hey, this is how the body actually works. And so I think there were there were some real quantum leaps in there. And there were things we started looking at at tissue, uh, muscle tissue, and all of a sudden foam rolling, you know, people are saying, wait a second, you know, we can manipulate tissue, we can work on these things. And this is stuff, if you look into the 90s, Charlie Francis was talking about a lot of this stuff when he was training Ben Johnson. But not a lot of people were listening at that time. But there were some of us that were, who were in the field and who started to say, hey, wait a sec, maybe this like stupid meathead, because what we did in that time, was you just chose, okay, I'm either going to imitate powerlifters, I'm going to imitate Olympic lifters, or I'm going to imitate bodybuilders. And that's going to be my program. And and it, again, I could show you if we went back into the 90s and into the 80s. 80s, it was almost all just straight powerlifting programs. It was squat, bench press, uh, you know, power clean, you know, try to lift as much weight as you possibly could, put the numbers up on the wall. And okay, that's strength and conditioning. And then people started looking and thinking, well, wait a second. I think the Olympic lifters are more powerful than the power lifters. And then suddenly the program started to look like Olympic lifting programs in more cases. So again, still probably people were squatting, but maybe there was more front squatting. Maybe there was a little bit more emphasis. You know, people were starting to do different clean variations, clean pulls, snatch pulls, those types of things. And they were basically eliminating or imitating Olympic lifters because people looked at it. You know, we would always say, like powerlifters, and I was a powerlifter. I competed in powerlifting when I was your age, right? I don't think it's a real athletic group. You don't go to a powerlifting meet and walk away impressed, like, oh my God, those guys were great athletes, man. You know, I bet that guy can really play basketball. I bet that guy is probably amazing at tennis. You look at powerlifters and think, I used to jokingly say, like, I'm not sure if that guy could get out of the way of a moving bus, but he might survive getting hit by it, right? Whereas Olympic lifters, and I remember I went to the, uh, I went to the senior national Olympic lifting championships and this was in the eighties. I forget a what year in the eighties, but it was held in Massachusetts only once in my lifetime. It was in Seekonk, Massachusetts, which is like a nowhere town, Southeastern Massachusetts. But I drove down there and I thought, Whoa, hold the phone. These guys aren't power lifters. These guys were athletes. Like you started watching these guys and seeing the bar speed and seeing how these guys moved. And I started thinking, Oh, we're we're barking up the wrong tree. So in that way, I went from my back my background as a kid, powerlifting, right? Just gonna get shit, get as strong as you can. You know, some of these track and field guys, the throwers, who were great sprinters and great jumpers, and were throwing implements really far. And then we started thinking, hmm, maybe there's some there's some mix of this. So suddenly we started thinking about movement training. I can remember in 1990, I'm gonna say five. We built a new weight room at Boston University. And one of the things that I did is I, I put in four lanes of track surface and no equipment. And every single person that walked in at that time said, when is the rest of the equipment coming? And I was like, there is no more equipment coming. And they were like, well, why? We have this huge empty space in the weight room. And I was like, yeah, that's where we're going to have our hurdles. We're going to do our sprints. We're going to do our plyos. Like we're going to, and they looked at me like I was out of my mind. Now, that would be standard, right? Somebody designs a weight room, a big turf space, a new space where we can run sprints, where we can do plyos. But when I did that in the 90s, people legitimately thought I was crazy. You're, you know, you've got all this space. 
you know, why don't you get a leg extension machine? Why don't you get a leg press? Why don't you get a reverse hyper? Why don't you get this? I said, I don't want any of that stuff. I want room to run and jump. And I mean, we had a timer. We were way ahead at that time. We were, we had electronic timers, but they had wires. Literally, they weren't even, um, you know, they weren't Bluetooth or whatever. Wires connecting them together. And, uh, and we were running time sprints. And in some ways, I think I, I kind of went backwards because I, I got away from some of that stuff. But we were doing things at that time. So I think it's changed tremendously when you look at sort of, you know, what we would call, you know, our, our MBSC type of programming or the Exos type of programming where it's way more than how much can you lift. Yet, there's some guys on Twitter right now and they're like, no, nah, it's just how much can you lift? <laughs> so, you know, now we've got VBT. Now it's not how much can you lift, it's how fast can you lift it, which again, maybe not a bad idea. I'm not a huge VBT guy, but I think uh, I'm maybe starting to drift in that direction a little bit. Yeah, I believe that's the VBT is starting where people are starting to drift towards. Um, I know there's a bunch of companies that sell their VPT system and you can get some good feedback off of it for sure. Um, but yeah, talking about the 2010s, I mean, um, just, I guess you're ahead of the curve at that point because now we see weight rooms, like you said, you know, they have the, the turf in the middle of the weight room. We have racks on the sides and yep. um, I yep. guess you're ahead of the curve than what we are at that time. I hate to say I've always been curved, truthfully. We've always been, we were always on the edge of what people should be doing. And I think people have always copied. I mean, I opened a for-profit strength and conditioning facility 26 years ago and said, we're going to train athletes and we're going to train guys for the NFL combine. I mean, if you look, there's a book uh, called The Draft that says I invented combine training. Now, I don't know if I was the first person to do it, but I might have been. I was one of the first two or three to actually take an athlete and say, hey, we're going to train for the combine. We had guys, I mean, I was on the cover. I was not, my athlete was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, but we had a full Sports Illustrated article on a guy named Mike Mamula who went from being, you know, an unknown to eighth overall pick in the NFL draft. And we had that. I had the first non-collegiate player ever drafted in the first round back in the in the 90s, a kid named Eric Swan, who literally went from high school to uh, to the NFL without ever playing a college game. And so we were doing things that other people were not doing. I just think the interesting thing is that there's still people who 40 years later haven't progressed. I, I, I'm, I'm, some days I'm dumbfounded when I look at people and think, that it's still just a sort of maximum strength game. And the interesting thing is in high school, that's still like I train my son, his friends, getting strong is still where it's at. There's no question. You've got to get strong, but it's also so much more than that. But I think some of us uh, in strength and conditioning, we do what we like to do a lot more than we do what's good for the athletes. And so if you get people and there's still those people, if you're a whatever, if you're a bodybuilder, if you're a West side guy, if you're a power lifter, if you're an Olympic lifter, then that gets heavily reflected in your programming. In a lot of people's cases, whereas in ours, now I look at it and think, I mean, we don't, we don't conventional deadlift at all. We do nothing but trap bar. We don't squat at all, really. I mean, we don't ever, we haven't done a back squat in decades. 
except unless you're going to a school where they test back squat. Uh, so we've done primarily all unilateral, all unilateral knee dominant lower body stuff for a really long time. We haven't, we haven't cleaned off the floor ever. We've been, you know, hang power clean above the knee people for 40 years. So I think there's just, it's really hard for people to get past their biases or what their high school coach did. Even someone like you, you're probably really heavily influenced by the strength and conditioning program you had as a high school kid without even realizing it because it is what you know. And it's what you look at and think, this is what helped me to get better. This is how I got into strength and conditioning. This is what I was taught. We're, I think the people, like I said, we, I was some guys like me were ahead because I was willing to look at other people. I went down, I visited Mark for Stegen at before athletes performance was ever opened. It would have been, I would say it was 1998. I went down to Florida when he was working at the, then it was called international performance Institute. It was at voluntary tennis Academy. But one of my friends had said, you really got to go meet this guy. He's doing some really cool stuff. And I went down there and I was like, they're right. He's doing some really cool stuff. They were teaching lateral movement. We we had, were at the point where we thought, hey, we can teach somebody to be faster. But we hadn't even really thought about teaching lateral movement. Now people talk about that as if it's, you know, common knowledge, shin angles and this and, you know. But trust me, in 1999, there were not very many people that had even thought about lateral movement and how it might apply. There were not a lot of people who had thought about I remember seeing Mark, he was doing like rotational core stuff. They had a med ball wall built, a huge med ball wall, and they were throwing med balls, and we were in the weight room, and they were doing all these chopping and lifting diagonal patterns that they had gotten from Gray Cook. And I just, I went back to our coaches, and I said, we got to make some changes. And our coaches were like, wait, our program's great. And I'm like, not, they're doing, Mark Verstegen at International Performance Institute is doing some things better than we're doing. We need to do those things. We need to build a med ball wall. We need to upgrade our core stuff that we're doing. Because then it wasn't even core, it was abs, right? When I when we first started doing it, you did abs at the end of the workout. You did a bunch of stupid shit, sit-ups and flutter kicks and, you know, this dumb shit that made no sense at all. And then I look at people and they still do it. And I look and think, have you, have you not been paying attention the last 20 years in terms of understanding core function and how these muscles work and the fact that they're, they're, they're stabilizers? And there's just so much stuff that there was to learn and, for us, we were always trying to be at the forefront or at the front of the learning line. Like, okay, there's a learning line. I want to be in the front. <laughs> uh, you know, if I'm going to go to a seminar and I'm going to figure out, first thing I want to know, who's smarter than me? If that person's smarter than me, I'm getting in the front row and I'm listening. So whether it was Greg Cook or Stuart McGill or Mark or um, Thomas Myers or whoever it was, it was like get in there, sit in, listen to their lecture and start figuring out, most importantly for us, how does that apply to what I'm doing? How do, how do I make my program better? And that's all we did. So we just kind of, we subtly, things were nuanced. We swapped things in and out. We said, hey, all right, we got to do, you know, maybe our warm-up looks different. I mean, I can remember thinking, reading Charlie Francis's book and thinking, you know, there was a huge emphasis on massage in his book. And thinking, you know, we found a massage therapist and we started trying to get some massage work done for our athletes. And we said, this just isn't practical. This guy can't possibly work on the number of athletes that we have. And then I saw Mike Clark, who uh, was the originator of the NSM texts and all that stuff. 
And he started talking about, he literally, I still remember self myofascial release with a foam roller. And I was like, huh? Self myofascial release foam roller. And then the rollers were really soft. So you could use a roller for about a week and then it was no good anymore because they were made out of kind of the sort of foam that you'd find in a packing box or something was what the original foam rollers were made from. But then we started thinking, wait a second, this works. Like people are feeling better because we're, we're doing self-massage now. So there was just so much stuff that I think we take for granted now. It wasn't there. Or at least utilized in a broad sense. Absolutely. So uh, I kind of wanted to backtrack just a little bit. Um, so you were talking about um, just staying ahead, right? You're going to, I guess, these conferences, clinics, and you know, find the person that was smarter than you and trying to learn and stay ahead and making changes and stuff like that. Um, I think that's one thing that coaches now are trying to do, right? We're trying to get the edge or trying to advance our own programming, our own, um, I guess, our own philosophies even. Um, I know when I went to the NHSSCA's conference, I listened to a bunch of different coaches and they're all smarter than me and I was sitting there and just absorbed that information. It's like, okay, well, I could take this away. I could take this away. I mean, you're a big influence in the field of strength and conditioning right now. Even so that our offensive coordinator at uh, the school I'm at, he's reading your book right now. Um, and we're trying to advance our own like programming, our own um, programs here. And that's one thing I think people take away from you is because you're staying ahead of the curve every single time. You know, your program that looked like in the 80s is a lot different than what it looks like in the 90s. And then whatever it looked like in the 90s, it's a little bit different than what it looks like now because you've adapted throughout the years. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's I think that's what you should be doing. You always look. There's a great quote, Ron Ruska, the guy who started the Postural Restoration Institute. Uh, he was actually talking about his postural restoration idea but I think it applies to everything he said. Think of things that can make your existing program better. You don't want to scrap your program because I said if you scrapped your if you went to you know the the National High School Strength Coaches Association, which I love, I think is an amazing. Gary and those guys do an unreal job with their like with their seminars with bringing coaches in. But if you go to that and you come away and you've scrapped your program, it means your program wasn't very good to begin with. It means you probably hadn't done enough work going in. But with that said, you should be going in there and thinking, wow, yeah, there are ways, there are better ways to do this. So I just, you know, you look at it. I mean, I, my thing is we should all be masters of common sense. And I remember looking at trap bar deadlift and thinking, okay, common sense it makes way more sense. The ability to stand inside of the bar makes it infinitely easier to teach deadlifting and to perform the deadlift. Okay, that's what we're going to do. The bars are pretty inexpensive. They're 100 bucks, give or take. So it's not hard to get a decent amount, you know, enough of them to be able to do this. And so for us, I mean, that's really the only major bilateral lift that we do. But it's because it makes so much sense. And then when you think, you know, people argue about the whole unilateral thing, and, and I look at them and say, okay, Show me a bilateral sports skill that starts in a position of deep knee flexion. Do you know how many there are? 
None. <laughs> Absolutely zero. But we're so attached to squatting that it's really hard for people to take their blinders off and look and think, wait a second. What do you mean? You know, you mean you don't squat? And I'm like, yeah, we don't squat. We squat our beginners. We'll gobble squat our beginners. But when they get strong, we start trying to get them strong on one leg because we look at sport. And, you know, people come up with dumb stuff. Oh, what about volleyball? And I'm like, no, it's power. You know, they're jumping up, absolutely jumping off two legs. Basketball jumping off two legs. I get it. But that's not strength. That's not squatting. That's maybe hand cleaning, but it's not squatting. And it's the ability to analyze, I think, and I, I'm going to try to say this. It is the ability to analyze without opinion. To just look and think, okay, I'm going to put my opinion aside and I'm going to analyze this situation as a realistic, rational thinking person and then ask myself, where do I end up at the end of this conversation? And I always think you probably should end up where I am because that's what I've done. I've looked at things. I mean, you're talking about someone. I started out as a powerlifter. We tested back squats. All my athletes back squatted. We eventually went to front squat. We, we've done all these things. You know, I've had belt squat machines. I've done, I've done everything that everybody's doing. I have done already in my 40 years of coaching. And this is where I've ended up. And then I look at, and that's why I always use Mark. I love Mark. He's one of my dear friends. But also I remember going to see Mark and thinking, my God, our philosophies are almost identical. Now, and this is 99, and I'm looking and thinking, wow, we are, we're both being really successful with really high-level athletes in completely different places. He's in Florida, I'm in Massachusetts, philosophically. And then I start exploring, thinking, okay, he's got to have some of the same influences with me. I started asking him about, about Mike Wojcik or about some of these guys that were my influences. And he's like, nah, you know, I went to Georgia Tech. I went to Washington. You know, this guy, that guy. And I'm thinking, but what, what he did is he analyzed – very much the same things that I was analyzing. It's that ability to, to analyze information and to look at that information and say, okay, in what way am I going to make, um, am I going to make my program better, my existing program? And, and I think that's really kind of where we have to be. And, and that's what I think a lot of people don't do. They don't analyze. They don't look at things and say, how do I make my existing program better? What they do instead is they try to defend their existing program. This is why my existing program is already good. Whereas I never did that. I always said I was not, I was not married to anything. You know, I mean, because people look and they, wait, squatting, you don't squat. And I'm like, no, we don't squat. But you're a powerlifter. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I was a powerlifter. I love squatting. But I, I don't necessarily love it for my athletes. I, I think there's better choices. I think there's better things that we can do. So um, I don't know. I just think that's a big part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Got adapted through the times and uh, changed things or modified things. I should say changed. Modified things as time kind of goes through with your program. Um, so we're going to go ahead and switch up to Twitter Q&A. So this is where... Uh, we, I posted on Twitter of people that can ask you questions. I did have a couple questions myself, but there were a couple questions that were, all right. So we are kind of talked about this a little bit. So 
Wes Johnson. He's the head football coach over at McNary Central High School here in uh, Tennessee. So a couple questions today he asked were arena timing versus dasher. Besides price, what are the pros and cons? Yep, and it's just way easier to use. The dasher works on some kind of reflector-based system, and it's not very easy to set up. The the arena uh, the arena gear timers are just so simple. You just turn them on. There's a start and a finish. It's got you know the the start has an S on it, and the finish has an F on it, and you put the start across from one you know block on the other side. You put the finish across from the other one. You download the app on your phone. I mean, you're up and running in no time at all. So uh, to me, I honestly can't understand why people are buying other timers when you're saying this is cheaper and it works better. The one drawback, at least from our, and I don't think it's a drawback because we don't do it, but if you wanted to do a standing start measure, it's a little bit harder to do because they don't really give you a hand start feature. But other than that, like I said, for us, because we're kind of, Tony Holler, feed the cats kind of people. We're just looking at fly tens anyway. So it works perfect. Awesome. And he also mentioned this as well. says systems are important, but within the system, how do you indiv- individualize exercises for athletes based on needs? Um, we really don't, to be truthful, because I think until you get to a super high level, the needs are all the same. I think everybody needs to be faster. Everybody needs to be more powerful. You might eventually get some athletes and think that this athlete doesn't need to be bigger, but even that's pretty rare. When we look at, I always say, when you look at like the LeBrons of the world dominating basketball, and I'm not a LeBron fan per se, but when you think that that guy is 6'8", 260, you think, am I really worried about a basketball player getting too big when the best basketball player in the world is 6'8", 260? When I look at how big offensive linemen are, when I look at it, almost every position bigger is better. So I think the individualization thing sounds really good, but I don't find myself doing it very much. I've got some, honestly, historically, we've had some of the greatest athletes in the world at whole bunches of different sports. And I'm always trying to get them. I'm always trying to get their vertical jump higher and their 10 yard dash lower <laughs> i mean doesn't make any difference now do i look at do i really care how much they've benched now but again i'm gonna look if i got high school kids hey I'd, I'd love for them all to bench 300 pounds though i wouldn't be you know wouldn't, but i think the difference and this is um we get way too influenced by american football american football dominates the thinking of everything else in strength and conditioning and so as a result, we can be very bench press fascinated. I do think a guy, you know, if you can squat double body weight, you probably should be doing something else. If you can bench press even one and a half times body weight, you probably should be doing something else. There's probably other areas that we could be focusing on that might be more beneficial to you in terms of unilateral strength or power or whatever it is. But I don't think very many people get to that point. And I think sometimes we're worried about we're worried about beginners as advanced people when we should just be looking and thinking, okay, I just need to get in there. Like I, I got my son and his friends coming in this morning. They're mostly seniors in high school and we're going to do heavy chin-ups and we are going to do heavy trap bar deadlifts and we are going to do plyos and we are going to do med ball throws. And 
there's going to be nothing. You know, we're going to run sprints. It's going to be nothing particularly magical about what we're going to do with these kids. But what we're not going to do is have a powerlifting meet because that to me would be a waste of time. Yet yeah, we're going to spend some time working on getting strong, but I'm not going to waste time on the nuances of powerlifting stances and wraps. You know, I look at some people and think you're wasting time in the same way. Three point stance starts. You're wasting time. It's American football. Nobody else puts their hand on the ground to start except American football and track and field. And generally for us training athletes, we're not training either of those. In American football, only, I mean, roughly a third of your guys are going to put their hand on the ground. Maybe a half, depending on kind of what offense you run and how you're going to do it. But uh, most of those guys are going to run out of some sort of modified two-point stances. And yet we spend, I and I did it. This is why I say I've made the mistake. I spent hours teaching my, now teaching, think about this, hockey players, how to start so they could get a fast 10-yard dash time. And I'm teaching three-point stance and foot position and body lean and where I want to be because I want a good 10-yard dash. And then I go back. When I go to fly 10, I think, who cares? You know, people, how do I start? I don't care. One foot in front of the other, go. Boom. I'm not going to waste any time teaching you how to start. I'm just going to see who the fastest guys are. And it's not easy to figure out. Or it's not hard to figure out, actually. Sorry, it is easy to figure out. Right, exactly. Um, so a couple of questions that I have for you. Um, so the CFSC, uh, your certification program. So what made you want to do that? I didn't honestly, I did not want to do it. My, my staff wanted to do it. Other people kept saying, you guys, you, you should have a certification. I think what made us do it was realizing how bad the other education was that was out there. I felt like, okay, we can deliver a better educational product than a lot of other people are delivering. And I was looking at what people were paying for courses for, because the way that it worked in my mind, for a while we would just do seminars and mentorships and things like that, and people would come to learn. And then suddenly we moved into this era of certification where people really wanted, they wanted to walk away from the course saying, I'm certified in X. And so what happened to us is that we realized, all right, this is the delivery system that people want. They want a certification course. That's what they're paying for in kind of competing educational opportunities that we're, that we're competing with at that time. So we would find, we used to get 10 people. We'd put a mentorship group out. We'd get 10, 12 people that would pop on in a second and pay a thousand bucks to come and spend five days at MBSC. And suddenly that dropped off, but we were finding people were going to these two day certification courses to, for, to get certified in sometimes, you know, whatever things I would think were pretty inane. So we started to realize, all right, we need to develop an educational product that is in fact a certification course. And that's where CFSC was kind of born. And we modeled it after the athletic trainers education in terms of, there was this pre-study, like in our course, you can't take the course if you don't pass the written test. So you have to actually pass the written test prior to coming to the course. At the end of the course, you have to pass a practical exam. So they're going to say to you, John Mark, um, show us how to teach squat. And you're going to teach somebody gobble. You're going to show them gobble squat. And they might say, demonstrate, um, uh, you know, a shuffle and stick in the ladder. 
uh, demonstrate a dumbbell row, explain progression, regression of this exercise. And so we're going to make sure that you can demonstrate it and think it. So we put together a really good, a really high quality product. And it's been hugely successful, way more successful than I ever thought it was going to be. I mean, it's a, it's a business in and of itself. And truthfully, you, it's mine, but it's Kevin Carr and Brendan Rierick are really the guys that, that are driving this whole thing. And we've got unbelievable teachers. Our coaches have really embraced it and they get out and they teach it all over the world. Kevin was in China for, uh, for 12 days last week. We've got guys, I mean, we've traveled to, to I mean, Almost every, I think India, you know, India and Russia might be the only two big companies we haven't, or countries we haven't gotten to in terms of getting people out to do CFSC. It's been really well received. Absolutely. And that's one thing that uh, I did. I, I did your CFSC program and walked away with a lot of better, I guess, not knowledge, but just better overall awareness of myself, of how I teach and what progressions am I using if, uh, you know, if athletes are not progressing, you know, what is something that we can regress and um, something I think is very, very valuable in this field for sure. Yep. I think it's, it's a thought process, really. What we're doing is we're teaching people a thought process. Absolutely. Um, so I really want to ask you this question. So what does the future of Michael Boyle look like? The so Michael Boyle is, is being retired five years from now. I don't even know if I'll be doing this stuff anymore. I have a 17 year old who's going to college to play lacrosse. Um, I have a daughter who's 23 who's playing professional women's ice hockey. I like watching my kids play. Um, I'm very near the end of my time as a business person. I think the future for Michael Boyle may be showing up with Gary Schofield to talk at a national high school strength coach association every now and then, but I'm trying to do, I just don't want to travel as much. I don't want to be, involved as much as i am right now and the future is you know kevin carr and brendan rierick and steve bigelow and dan mcginley and vinnie fluto these kids that work for me they're, they're going to be out teaching our message to people and i will be hopefully uh maybe i'll be working on my house i love carpentry maybe i'll be mowing my lawn i don't know but i'll, I'll be i'll be putting myself out to pasture in the next five years gotcha Gotcha. And let's go ahead and jump into the last segment here. So um, this is called Conjugate Coach Spotlight. So uh, this is where you and me will highlight a specific coach in the industry that's making the impact on strength and conditioning. So who's a coach that you've seen or uh, want to shout out that's making the impact? I think, well, the guy who's making the biggest impact for me is Tony Hall. I think Tony has... Tony has sparked a movement with his whole track football consortium and this whole feed the cats idea. He's really gotten people to rethink what they're doing from a training standpoint. He's, he's a great writer. He's really smart. He's a powerful speaker. It's interesting. I always joke. He's my age. He looks like me. And he's one of these guys. I mean, he popped on the scene. He probably didn't come on the scene until he was 55, 56 years old. But I think he's a guy who's really making a really significant impact on the field in terms of he's a track coach who's addressing speed across the board. So football, lacrosse, basketball, it doesn't make any difference. He's impacting a huge number of coaches. I remember the first time reading about Feed the Cat system and um, just Tony Holler all together. I'm like, 
so you can get faster just from 10 yard sprint or you know, 20 yard sprints where you don't have to go long distance and i mean it it was an it was incredible to read that and then implement it you know in my own program with you know my own kids and athletes and it was it was incredible man it was incredible that it was just so simple exactly yeah, it was so so effective so simple. we started doing it and again i did it i remember with my son we started doing it and my son i remember him looking at me he was probably 12 years old and i remember him looking and thinking um wow dad i'm slow and i was like yeah you are but we're going to get faster because we're going to keep doing this and i mean i think he ran and we did it when we started we did do, I think we were using our Brower and we were running a regular 10. He ran like a, almost a one nine ten, like a one eight seven ten, from a standing, you know, whatever, three-point start or standing start. I forget how we did it. We probably were foot starting it. And, I mean, that's pretty darn slow. <laughs> and uh, and now he's a one one, And he's a one one at a body weight that was probably – not two times the body weight he was when he did the one nine, but pretty close. Yeah. He was probably, he might've been 110 pounds when he ran a one nine and now he's 180 pounds running a one, one. That's a really big difference in an athlete. So we were seeing it with our athletes and we're seeing it with world-class. We're seeing it with national team level people, NHL level people, girls that are playing in the, you know, the world across championships, world ice hockey championships. We're seeing them still getting faster, even at the elite elite level. That's incredible. That, that's just incredible. Uh, so my two, I have two coaches that I want to highlight on here. First one being Coach William Fly. He's now the Southeast Region Director for the NHSSCA. Uh, just got promoted the other day. And um, he was the North Carolina State Director. So he got promoted up from there. And um, the other guy that I want to shout out is Kyle Jasic, who took over that North Carolina state director title um, for Coach Fly. And those two guys, I met them at the NHSSCA's conference. You know, there have been big connections for for me on Twitter, and um, they bring a lot of good insight. And um, just they're, they're really great coaches. I have both their phone numbers, texted them. I text Kyle off and on, you know, asking for advice because he's been – in the game for uh for a bit even though he's he's pretty young i believe i believe he's a year older than me a year or two older than me but the experience that he has is is pretty incredible as well well it's awesome if you think about it send me those two like their twitter handles i will and you uh will follow up on this so i can follow them i will all right well coach boyle thank you again for coming on the conjugate chats it was great to have you on and have all that experience and knowledge and you know, just knowing a little bit more of the history of strength and conditioning, especially through your perspective. Hey, it was a pleasure. Keep up the good work. I know this was one of your goals for last year was to start a podcast and to get it going. That's why I wanted to be on. I was like, I like this kid. He's he's motivated. So <laughs> I want to be able to help you. I appreciate you, Michael. And that's another episode of the Conjugate Chats. Please right. follow our social media platforms at Conjugate Chat Podcast on Twitter and TikTok. Also follow Coach Boyle on here as well. So in the name of strength, stay strong and have a day today.